Welcome to Penny Lane, Glenn. We're uh, so happy to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Glenn, I'd like to start by you have had a career that has spanned uh, label distribution uh, to pausing mid-career to go back and earn a uh, uh, an MBA in finance from Vanderbilt University to then moving to the editorial analytics uh, and uh, as a writer for a number of publications. Take us through a bit of that career arc and, and how you've arrived where you are today as an independent communications consultant in the music industry. Sure, sure. Um, you know, before going to business school, I worked at, for Caroline Distribution, which uh, is EMI's independent label distribution arm. Uh, now it's more label services, if not completely label services. Uh, but back then, it was, you know, to EMI what ADA is to Warner Music. Group. Right. So um, a lot of great indie labels. Um, I think it was a very good experience on, on knowing how retail works and understanding how labels works and, and being the intermediary between the two. Um, and, and there's a lot of cool music too. So it was a very good place to be. Um, you know, at a time I thought that I was, I was just content to, uh, you know, work in the independent music world. Um, I felt like I wanted to, to go do something else in music. I knew that I just had the feeling that that was not going to, uh, be something long-term that I wanted to do. Um, I went to business school at Vanderbilt. Uh, I chose Vanderbilt because it's in Nashville and it's in one of three main music cities. The thing about going into music is you typically have to go find a job for yourself. Is there not music companies doing on-campus interviews? Right, right. So you go fend for yourself. Um, I had a music blog called Coolfer that I wrote mainly about the music business. Um, it was fairly well read um, back in the day, and that started, I think, 2003, and it went <clears throat> until very beginning of 2009 when I, I started working at Billboard, and uh, and Bill Werdy, who was the editorial director at the time, wanted to wanted to hire me after school, and and we had actually talked a little bit before I went to school, um, and so we talked again afterwards, uh, and he hired me to write for the magazine, but write usually with a different point of view um, as, much, as much based on data as possible. Yeah, I was going to say, fair to say that that was part of the shift for that publication in particular, as as most, if not all, now have, have had to, to a data-driven or data-enabled. Yeah, it's, it's been a big shift. Um, you know, I certainly would write using data as a source more more frequently, and I would prefer to use data as a source and the basis for an article than getting quotes from people. You can, you can get quotes from three, four, five people, and it might be different from quotes and insights you get from another three, four, five sure. people. Well, and I'm curious not to pause there for a moment, because I think it's, it's very uh, relevant to our overall conversation, is your experience and your observations about the business as a whole, you know, it's a business of hits, it's a business of taste, it's a business of influence, uh, making that necessary but sometimes uncomfortable shift to to one where data has roughly, you know, equal standing uh, to those other factors. What, what were your observations and experiences as you saw that shift occur at Billboard uh, and looking out across the industry as a whole? You know, I've, I've seen over the years that people have become a lot more comfortable with data. <clears throat> I think going back to 
early 2000s uh, that this is a shift that I think was inevitable. Mm -hmm. You know, music companies are far smaller than they used to be, um, and their makeup is different than they used to be. So uh, these big majors had you know, a lot of people in distribution, and they had offices all around the country. Now they might have an office in LA, Nashville, New York, um, Miami, and maybe Minneapolis because Target and Best Buy are there. Um, so distribution side is much smaller than it used to be, sales um, smaller than it used to be. And, and you have a different type of person who for the most part is younger, for the most part did not grow up in the old school right. music business who is more comfortable with data and understands the, the role that data has. That's not to say that everybody's perfectly comfortable with it. Um, stories I hear of, of the goings on inside no doubt. record labels right. and A&R. People look to it uh, for the most part, some don't. Um, I don't even know if they're still in the music business, but for the most part, people uh, look to data to help them uh, kind of understand and clarify and, and maybe back up their gut feeling. Right. As I, as I have heard one uh, Silicon Valley exec uh, phrase, it gut, data, gut, you know, begin with that gut feeling, uh, investigate with data, but ultimately land uh, on your gut and, you know, different perspectives uh, held on that. But uh, I think that seems to hold true in this business. And then from, from there, it seems like a natural uh, evolution, Glenn, that you moved after seven years at Billboard to Pandora where you were in music analytics and insights. Tell us a bit more about that. It was a role in the communications department. And um, what I was talking about was the Pandora platform um, and the role it played, the value it provides, um, the marketing uh, tools that are available to us. The artist marketing platform had already launched when I started there. Right. And again, it was very data-driven. And uh, the good thing about working for a, a music streaming company is there's a lot of data and there's already a lot of analysis going on there. So if, if there wasn't data readily available for something, I could have uh, reports run and I could have data to talk about um, whatever topic it was. Sometimes it would even go all the way out to you know, a little bit about public policy and um, and, and how royalties are being paid. And that was something that was explained hopefully well uh, when Pandora signed direct deals because how royalties were paid uh, changed a little bit. So uh, it was a variety of topics. Um, I think it was a very good experience of working inside that company. Would it be fair? I mean, my, my assumption, if I'm, if I'm Pandora and I'm looking at the job that I need to get done through your work uh, in, in analytics and insights is communicating what is often nuanced and um, emotional <laughs> about the changes in the business platform like Pandora in a way that is backed by data and, and hopefully more compelling and more believable. Is that fair? Well, it wasn't necessarily an alternative way of communicating. It was just communication that they had not done up to that point. Uh, right. They had not been reaching out to the, the artist community. And I, when I say artist community, I would say artists and artist managers and, and even satellites beyond that. And we can call that record labels, publishers. Right. Of course, all different types of people were welcome to read this, but it was mainly based at the artist community. Um, and 
just not somebody they had on staff to do that. So remember not too far back into the future, Pandora really didn't have uh, you know, relations with record labels or publishers for the longest time. They just used, um, you know, pay the statutory rate. Um, right. Of law and paid royalties to sound exchange. And they didn't have to have relationships with, with record labels. Mm -hmm. um, they realized, um, as all streaming services do over time, that um, to be the best they can be, they need to have relationships and work with labels and work with artists. Um, and then <clears throat> I think those relations improved quite a bit. And Lars Murray went went from uh, you know uh, Columbia. I hope I'm not messing up that record label to, <laughs> to set up industry relations, label relations at, at Pandora. Mm -hmm. Built that team, um, and then on the communication side, there just was not a person dedicated to. <clears throat> To speaking to the artist community. You are now an independent communications consultant working in the music industry uh, for some large names that we won't disclose uh, on the podcast, but can you tell us a bit about um, how writing and analytics and, and your data-driven uh, focus has uh, has kind of come to a, a head or to a point with the work you're doing now? Sure. You know, I think if I have any talent at all, and, and people have, have said this to me, it's that I can take something complicated and explain it in simple terms. And I just I'm writing for my mother and trying to explain something to her. And, and hopefully, hopefully that'll get the, the message across. Uh, well, and I mean, I think it's, it's germane to everything now, which is about lack of attention, right? That, that we all have our attention spread and, and, and spread so thin across so many different uh, media that uh, being able to do that is, is crucial. Yeah. Getting somebody to read as far as the second paragraph can be a little tricky sometimes. So something, no doubt, something you work on, and hopefully I've got to that point. Um, at, at this point, I I know the industry well enough and, and how it works, and um, I can I can help a company with its communications. That's a that's a great jumping off point into what I'd like to uh, discuss first with you, Glenn. Based on I know. Um, some coverage you you provided on Twitter about Edison Research's The Infinite Dial 2019 study. And I'll include, of course, a link to this in the show notes. It um, was conducted in January, February of this year by Edison Research, roughly 1,500 people uh, ages 12 and older. Uh, so, you know, the methodology is there. Um, and it, it covers social media and uh, digital media more broadly. So we'll sort of skip over the social media, which I think everyone can can uh, read through that. And we you know, have seen coverage of Facebook's decline, et cetera, et cetera. But if we jump into media and technology, uh, your thoughts, your, your key takeaways from, from what you saw, Glenn, in that study. Sure. You know, some of this was not much to say. Smartphone ownership is, is not gonna go anywhere, right? It's kind of plateaued. Mm -hmm. Tablet ownership, um, I, I was surprised it, it went up a little bit. I think um, Amazon got credit for that. Right. Um, you know, smart speakers, I think, are kind of the hot topic right now because there's so much growth because it's a, a different kind of platform. It's voice-activated platform, voice-enabled. So smart speakers were, I think, a big focus of this, and I think that's where uh, some attention should go understanding how many people have these, even what the awareness is. Awareness is absolutely awareness is high. 79% of the population, 23% of 
the population own a speaker. Um, it's, let me see, doing the math real quick. Um, over half is Amazon Alexa. Absolutely. Home is second, although some things I've seen, Google Home and more recent sales is doing a lot better. I don't know if they've matched or surpassed Alexa sales yet, but you know, when you look at all these Amazon Alexa numbers, think back and remember they had a big lead to begin with. So I think Google is doing fairly well. Right. Well, and I think, you know, not surprisingly, uh, Amazon, as you say, had, had the first mover advantage they've dominated and, you know, in as much as it's relevant to online audio as, as the research report calls it in the next section, um, you know, that is opening up just tremendous opportunity for, uh, for streaming media, uh, in general. And, and with that, if, if we move into what, you know, again, the report calls online audio, you know, your, your, uh, uh, your alma mater, is that a fair thing to say about Pandora? You know, I was actually surprised, maybe I shouldn't have, that Pandora leads in terms of awareness um, and in some cases, in, in the case of, I believe, in-car audio usage. Any thoughts there? Was that at all surprising to you? Um, no, no, not at all. I mean, you know, Pandora's been around for such a long time. Certainly. I don't think that their awareness has dropped um, maybe, maybe slightly over the years. But again, it's Pandora has been around for 13 years, maybe right. almost 14. And yep. so it is the granddaddy. Now their market share has slipped. Sure. That's not reflected in awareness. Awareness is just how many people are familiar with it. And, um, and so that, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, it does do well in the car, right? The Pandora mm -hmm. has 89% awareness, uh, which is probably where it's been for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. It's an old brand. Um, it has lost market share, but again, it's, it's very well known. iHeart Radio has, has done very well. Amazon Music is, is equally as good. Yep. As Definitely some surprises here for me. Apple Music and Spotify. I think it goes to show just in general how well these streaming services are known. They've come a long way in two, three years. And good old Napster hangs in there at 47% for brand Napster. awareness. You know, and I, I know market research, they try to be specific with people and say not napster peer-to-peer -peer, but the napster right legal streaming services and, and i trust that 47 percent is about that legal service yeah. and to your point pandora if we look at brands used most often they hold uh the title at 30 percent as well with spotify closing in at 25 so yeah 30 30 percent uh, in the last month which is well it beats everybody else um mm -hmm. in listening time i believe Spotify in the U.S. now beats Pandora, um, or at least average active sessions, I think, is the metric. Right. That right. Uh, with the uh, Infinite Dial study, in anything that did surprise you? Well, if we're talking about audio brands, um, I'm surprised that Amazon Music has, has grown uh, as quickly as it has. Right. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised because Alexa has done so well. But... Um, percent who've listened to it in the last month has gone from 8% to 10% to 12%. You know, I, and I do wonder, uh, as, as many would, would cover the just sheer volume or, or, or size of Amazon's reach and distribution, Amazon Prime subscribers, et cetera, uh, their ability to uh, 
promote as they did. I think it was a two-week trial, a 90-day uh, trial. I forget. The, I, I participated in it. I mean, ultimately, I landed back on Apple Music, which is my personal preference. But the point being for them to reach however many hundreds of millions of Prime um, subscribers they have, I presume, could could in relatively short order uh, turn the tide and, and, and really ramp up their brand awareness. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. We should be surprised if they didn't have this kind of growth. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, the numbers I just read off were for Apple Music, not Amazon. Amazon's gone from from six percent to twelve percent in mm-hmm. just two years. Wow. So it's even with Apple Music. Um, it, again, this is doesn't mean they've listened to the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this doesn't mean that the if the royalties paid are going to be the same. Absolutely, right? which is a terrific point to to clarify. Is- when I look at Amazon Music, I, I think mostly of smart speakers. Um, and if we want to talk about smart speakers in here in a little bit, I think of incremental listening time. So people who have smart speakers right. listen to audio more. At least they, they have told us in research in the past. They listen to more music. They listen to more podcasts. I think they even incremental listening time probably goes across different formats, probably AM FM radio, which is streamed on these. Absolutely. I mean, for me, for me personally. Yep. And that's, I mean, you know, just one data point, but that's my usage pattern is uh, my phone, my AirPods listening to something most all the time. I've got my system at home and then in my kitchen, I've got my uh, Alexa where, you know, as you note, it's incremental in that I'm, I'm using TuneIn to listen to Lightning 100 here in Nashville and a couple of other radio stations and, you know, basically using it as background music when I don't need or want the fidelity uh, of something that, that has that fidelity. Yeah, it is. It is the ultimate um, convenience over audio quality. Right. Uh, although I know that's improving, right? Absolutely. Amazon subwoofer. So if we transition from that, speaking of reports, um, noting the RIAA, Recording Industry Association of America's 2018 annual report, uh, similarly, Glenn, you uh, dug in and, and broke down some of the key numbers. W- what were your key takeaways from from that report? Well, you know, as usual, my, my takeaway was looking at first of wholesale revenue. Mm. Retail is nice to know. It's nice to know what uh, services are collecting. Right. Ultimately, that tells you how much money is being spent by consumers. Typically, I look at wholesale also, which is how much is going into to labels and creators. So it's two thirds of retail. So I keep that number in mind. The number that is is thrown about all the time tends to be retail. It's, right. it's a larger number. It sounds better. That's Certainly. not exactly what's going to creators. There's a big difference. Um, I'm surprised that streaming. Uh, is 75% of U.S. music industry revenues. Mm-hmm. 75%. The thing is that I know streaming activities, uh, the number, number, the quantity of streams, right? Uh, time spent listening to streaming. That's up a lot. But have you ever met anybody who feels like they're getting paid well by streaming services? So the money's going out there. Maybe it's spread around more broadly than it used to be. Um, but there's this disconnect by how much money is going out to streaming services, paid in and paid out mm-hmm. by streaming services, and and the perception people have of what they're paid from streaming services. Oh, no question. And I mean, as we have discussed on this podcast at length, with a number of people who are you know both working with uh, artists, those that are um, representing uh, various parties in between, publishers, labels. 
um, you know, it's, there's no question. And, and, you know, I know your question was rhetorical, but no, I don't know anyone. Uh, I don't know an artist or a rights holder who, uh, uh, but I should say songwriter who believes that they're getting their fair share. I don't know, Glenn, if you, I don't want to wade you into this if, if, um, you don't feel strongly about it, but do you have a take on where the money is going? I mean, uh, I'm going to lead the horse to water here, but, um, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of strong opinions that, uh, the labels are keeping, you know, uh, yeah. more than their fair share. But, uh, you know, fr from your standpoint, looking at the numbers, doing the analysis, uh, speaking with those that you do, um, you know, where is the where is the leaky bucket dripping into? Well, it's a good metaphor. It's as if there are two buckets mm -hmm. and one are new releases and the other's catalog. Right. And, the last number I've seen, let's just look at rock music. The last number I've seen from Nielsen is that 70% of streams of rock music is catalog. Now, catalog is only older than three years, mm -hmm. or is that just deep catalog? It's not that old. 18 months maybe counts as catalog, but that's not a, a new release. It's not like what we you would see at the time. It's getting on the charts typically. Right. There's still sales. There's probably still sales at iTunes, um, but you know, songs hold on longer on streaming services. It might take a while to rise up. They do hold on a long time. And then people are listening to old songs, whether it's songs they look up and add to their playlist or the playlists made by the services, the, the curated playlists. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of old songs. A lot of that money is going to you know, older legacy artists. Not all really old, but I hope you get what I'm saying. Certainly. And sometimes they're estates. So... This is not money that's going to be seen by, you know, younger artists, relatively younger, or brand new artists who, are teenagers, are in their twenties. Right. Um, they are, they face something very different. Um, pop music's a little better. Pop is all about new, 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 mm -hmm. and a lot lower percentage of pop is catalog than it is with um, than it is with rock and roll. Same with, with hip-hop and R&B. It tends to be newer. Um, but nevertheless, nevertheless, older songs are being streamed. And maybe that's, you know, that's part of the disconnect. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think it's going to be in everybody's best interest um, with the streaming ecosystem. I can't say what's fair or what's not fair. I, I, I hope the streaming ecosystem supports all different kinds of music. And I think it's, <clears throat> I think it's in the services' best interest to to support music to the point that it is going to be created and it's going to improve their platform by having a diversity of music. And I don't think anybody wants a streaming service to just offer what we see in the top 100 these days, which is it's pop, it's a Absolutely. mix of pop EDM, it's a mix of pop EDM and hip hop. If you're not doing that, and if you don't have two or three collaborators and some big names, you might not even get a whiff of the charts. Right. So, so it's a difficult time for some types of music that would otherwise be doing very well with sales to come out, to do well, and honestly, just have a good return. To sustain, yeah. Well, and do you take, I know, Glenn, you pointed out in this report, the disparity between for example, U.S. and Japan, there are lessons that we can or should take from domestic versus international with regard to and particularly this report. 
Well, U.S. does very well with um, with per capita spending, um, and U.S. even though people don't probably think this or hasn't felt this way, U.S. Is, was early to uh, digital purchases, but U.S. consumers did pretty well moving to digital away from CDs, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot faster than some other countries. Germany, for example, has been slower. Spain was slower. Spain has had greater piracy problems. Um, UK has done very well in, in moving its industry and its consumers to digital platforms. But you know, countries vary so much from one place to another. Japan uh, is a place where digital is, is relatively new, where streaming is relatively new. Um, I can't speak about the, the cultural differences. Sure. Which to me, by the way, is fascinating just Myself always associating Japan with being um, uh, technology innovators and early adopters. Uh, but to your point, interesting that they've they have been uh, perhaps a bit slower to move to to digital music. Well, if you count ringtones as digital, that they're so yeah, fair, early adopters. right? They're incredible consumers of, of uh, mobile downloads and mobile ringtones and ringback tones, mm-hmm. but. Um, but digital purchases like something like iTunes and legal streaming services um, that, that have been there a while. Napster's been there for years. Apple Music is there now. Spotify's there. It, they're coming out at the country just hasn't got there yet. Their per capita spending mostly comes from CDs. And CD sales have not fallen all that much there. And it is, so, if I recall, it's the one remaining Tower Records. Is that right? The... I believe it the, is the, the one the mega tower records there in the remaining tower which is a separate entity than right. uh, the tower records in the united states yeah well with that to perhaps india speaking of uh domestic versus international and and where streaming music goes and and what will dictate the next series of big shifts um we have i'm sure most of us followed spotify's launch in india their very public pr battle with Warner. Um, your take on that? Well, I don't really have anything to say about, you know, Spotify and Warner, um, you know, going through these, going through these actions when they're negotiating licensing deals. Sure. Sometimes it seems more acrimonious than normal. Um, some pretty harsh words were said. Mm-hmm. Um, usually when something is said like that publicly, there's it's something's very personal. So who knows what went on there? Right. Um, but, you know, the majors do play hardball, mm-hmm. right? I mean, um, Warner pulled all of his videos from YouTube at one point. Um, and, and so when I think labels are, are dealing with these services, it's the one time I don't think they're thinking short-term. They are thinking long-term. They are thinking about the royalties they're going to get from there. End of the future, and they're thinking about the president that they're going to set. Right. Well, and as someone, and I uh, don't recall offhand, said this, that often uh, the majors will communicate with each other uh, through the press in this way, given that they are, of course, uh, forbidden from uh, from anything that resembles collusion, but that they often will communicate signals to each other through the press. But but moving from that, uh, Glenn, to to me, the broader issue of of India and the next billion or several billion streaming subscribers. Uh, I believe that the price point Spotify set was $1.80 mm-hmm. in India. And and your take on 
what that will do to um, the average revenue per user and, and perhaps what the industry and what streaming uh, needs to adapt to as we move both to the next few billion as well as even here domestically these bundling deals between say Apple and Verizon which brings ARPU down. Uh, your, your thoughts on sort of that shift as as we grow into those next few billion uh, streaming subscribers? Yeah I think in India the, the services uh, is priced where it should be. Mm-hmm. I think it's priced uh, where its competitors have priced it. And it's priced, I think, to what the market will bear. I've done some some charts on this. Um, I had an article I did for Music Business Worldwide when I talked about uh, Mexico. And when I was in Mexico City last summer, I was in a 7-Eleven. I said they have 7-Elevens there. <laughs> and I saw gift cards, you know, the normal rack of gift cards that you would normally see. And there's Spotify on there. And it's the equivalent of $5 a month. And I thought, well, that's, I didn't know what it would cost in Mexico. I figured it would be less. It's $5 a month. I thought, well, that's, that's fine. That's fine. If you compare per capita GDPs to the prices being charged by streaming services in these markets, mm-hmm. they're all pretty much the same. Maybe, you know, give or take a little bit. If you look at where Spotify is priced in India compared to per capita GDP, it's right where it should be. It's right, right where you would expect it to be. So you can only charge what the market's going to bear. Certainly. Can't charge what you can charge in Scandinavia and what you can charge in India. And I think it's going to be the same in Brazil, where the ARPU is going to be lower. Right. It's going to be the same in Indonesia, which has a huge population, and the ARPU is going to be lower. Um, I don't know if it's not in Pakistan yet, but Pakistan has a really big population too. There are all these countries where you know labels have been making little to no money before and where piracy has been a big problem to where they're going to start making some money and even though ARPU is going to be lower mm-hmm. the addressable market in some countries is going to be really big i don't think people should expect too much i don't think um, analysts and investors should think too much about seeing the same ARPU in these other countries and i i hope they all realize that um as you go to other markets, as you get outside of Western countries, you know, outside of, of Europe and North America, the prices are going to be different. But I don't think it could be any other way. No, certainly. And I mean, I think, you know, as, as a few have asked the question, growth at what cost? And so growth in subscribers um, at these understandably market bear, you know, market, uh, the rates that the markets will bear thoughts on is, is that a net positive? Will the industry, you know, need to, uh, I mean, the cost structure presumably is roughly the same. Uh, I don't know what, you know, uh, user acquisition or customer acquisition costs look like in those other countries, but any thoughts or insights on what that does fundamentally to the business? Well, I, I don't know how much more infrastructure or how much more staff it would take to go from, you know, 58 markets or whatever Spotify is in to 59, to 59 right. to be in there's definitely economies of scale that you benefit from, from being a global company that launches in one more country and then one more country after that. Um, so when you think about, when you think about the business model and it's a tough business model and you might get 25% of revenue left in gross margin dollars after paying rights holders mm-hmm. as a growing company, 
you can you look at the financials, right? I mean, they're losing money and they're still growing and they need to be in more countries and they'll catch up with it at some point. Um, but it takes a truly global company, I think, to build the type of, of streaming service that the industry needs, that labels need, and, and that I think artists needs. I think everybody's going to benefit the more places these services are. Now, they are localized to some extent, and you can't have the same service. Right. Um, East Africa. There's a service called Mdundo in Kenya, um, and now they've branched out. They, they are available in, in many other African countries, but it's, it's based, built very much for the local market. Um, it's ad-supported. If you want to pay really just a few dollars, you can get the ads stripped away. Um, they don't really stream music there as much as they download really compressed files and play them offline. When you have a prepaid market like this, when you right. might have people buying uh, enough for a day or two on a mobile network, and when you have cellular service that might not be as reliable as you'd like, when you uh, you know, uh, data bandwidth caps, mm -hmm. you're not gonna use the streaming service. And so this has been built with these countries in mind. Um, I believe, I believe Warner and, and maybe some others are being distributed by Indundo. Now, ARPU is going to be low on this, but again, you're reaching, you're reaching a market where you were not reaching before, <laughs> for better or worse. I have bought a lot of pirated music in Kenya um, in a lot of different fashions. Give somebody a thumb drive and they'll say, well, how many... How many gigs do you want? And I tell them two. And wow. Just load, load me up and I'll Me pay by the gig. I was going to say music by the pound, but by the gig, yeah. It is very much music by the pound. Now, it's all really terrible stuff that they've ripped off of YouTube. But, you know, if you're just looking for pirated music, I guess that's fine for a lot of people. Pirated yeah. CDs everywhere. Everywhere I've been in, in you know, I've traveled around Africa and uh, quite a bit in, in Central America. The pirated music is everywhere. So well, and I think you, you raise a great point, which is that, right, if, if you look at streaming as, as in, in many cases, I think the most appealing alternative to piracy, then that is absolutely, of course, a net positive, even if, if revenue is lower. Um, well, you know, if we, uh, talking as we did, Glenn, about the need for various uh, streaming providers to diversify, to differentiate. I think that takes us interestingly to the, the conversation of the rise of podcasts. And um, as many have covered, and I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar, you know, between Spotify committing now, I think it is upwards of 400 to 500 million dollars uh, to uh, bolster their podcast, their audio offerings more broadly. What are your takes on this this shift? Um, you know, there's seemingly another podcast company every other day that's raised $100 million. Um, it, is, it is a media darling, podcasting broadly, and uh, there's a ton of money following it. What do you take away from that specific to what that does for the streaming landscape on the DSP side and then for artists, uh, musicians, bands, and, and those that are making music, not, not spoken or other audio, where do we sort of find that balance? What, what, what happens over the next, uh, say, year in your mind? Well, you could just think about what happened in the last year and monthly podcast listening 
jumped pretty dramatically uh, in the last year. Um, 26% of the U.S. population to 32% just in one year. And that's, that's mm-hmm. monthly listening. That's, that's a huge increase. Uh, it also increased quite a bit from the, the young 12 to 24 demo. Um, and so I, I think it's great. Part of that probably, and I think this was mentioned in the Edison uh, webinar, that Spotify making podcasts available helped get that to to younger streamers. Um, the older demos, they've been pretty good with podcasts to begin with, right? They've over-indexed. They're right. not as likely to stream audio. They're not as likely to subscribe to something like Spotify. Radio stalwarts like NPR were early to make their shows available as podcasts, that that did get some of the older demographic on board earlier? I think so. Look, the thing about podcasting is, is it just means play on demand. Sure. That's podcasting. So a lot of this is time shifting what you already listened to. And with NPR, having so many shows available Mm -hmm. um, that I think that that's really helped uh, the increase in usage. Then you have really standalone podcasts and you have a lot of great content being created. And so, you know, something like Serial really got attention to podcasts. Again, that's an NPR Absolutely. Glenn, to say that uh, with NPR and others like them being early to the podcast game, that, that they drove or were largely responsible for, for older demographics getting on podcast bandwagon earlier? I think so. If you, if you take a look at NPR listener, it tends to be older. Uh, and a, a lot of these shows have been made available for people to listen to when they want. It's the, the POD in podcasting means play on demand. Um, and and I think podcasting is following TV and the trend of time shifting and letting people watch and listen when they want to. Um, and there's been a lot of great content that has got people on board who don't listen to NPR, um, who are listening to content created by other companies. You mentioned a lot of uh, investment in podcast companies. It's a great place to be if you're created a podcast company and, and have a dozen or show. Right. Uh, doesn't any shows. Um, there's the, it's, it's, I don't know if it's the golden age of podcasting. I think we might be saying that too early and next year might be more golden. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, we could be five years away from just incredible podcast content. But it's enough to get the 12 to 24 demo on board. Uh, there's a big jump last year and, and Spotify was probably um, credited with that, and I think that was mentioned in the Edison webinar yesterday. Um, I think it's gonna benefit everybody if people are listening to podcasts on what was previously considered music streaming services. Right. Spotify, Spotify is an audio platform. I think the thing limiting it in podcasting is that people view it as an audio or as a music platform. And it's going to have to change its perception and change its brand a little bit. Um, I listen to podcasts now on Spotify. I would rather get it all in one place. And I, I think most people would rather go to one place for their audio. You don't need, I don't think, I don't think you need a separate app for music and a separate app for podcasts. 
in Billboard was a piece um, you mentioned serial NPR's wildly uh, successful podcast. So Julie Snyder, who was producer of Serial in S Town, um, has um, I believe co-founder or uh, has joined uh, Sigil Company Number One, which is being billed as a um, music podcast label, which I think is a really interesting sort of evolution of of where it's all going. And and where I'd love to go with that is if you are a artist, if you are a record label, if you are on the music side of the ledger, um, thoughts on what this means, uh, or rather what the, the growth in podcast means, what, what do I, what do I do? Should I be paying attention to if I'm, if I'm on the music side of that equation? I think there's a lot of opportunity, right? And it's really hard to say what's going to be happening in five years. Um, I don't know if I don't know if music labels can get too heavily involved as they are right now. They might need to have a podcast division mm-hmm. that produces shows. Um, otherwise, it's going to be you know musician doing three-hour conversations like Joe Rogan, and it might not even be that interesting. So you can have a really inexpensive interview show, or you can do something that's more produced, that's more engaging. Right. It's more in line, I think, with what a lot of podcast creators and content companies are doing right now. But uh, it's another way to reach people. It's, it's relatively inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very immediate. I know that with the, the tools and digital distribution available now that uh, an artist can record something and have it online pretty quickly, the, the lag time is, is usually not so fast. And, you know, artists are releasing song after song and they're getting away from a typical album cycle, but it's not as immediate as podcasting can be. Um, and it just depends really like, you know, what kind of content do you want to create? I think, you know, the sky's the limit. And I, I think it absolutely makes sense that what are now traditionally music companies are going to be thinking more along the lines of audio and not just music as you and I would probably call it right now. Great point. And actually, I have to correct myself. They, they needed you, Glenn. They, I realized they left the end out of signal. I think I said signal because I had to look at that twice and think, that doesn't sound right. And then it looked longer in the, lower in the article and it is signal company, number one. But I think to your point and, and what I understand that they're doing here, I had a bit of an exchange on Twitter this morning about audio or spoke audio on one end and music on the other moving toward each other. Um, each from their own perspective. And I think here again, Pandora, uh, this morning I heard that they have or are making uh, changes or sort of evolving uh, the ability to mix spoken audio and music. And I'm not clear on exactly the details, but it may mean uh, the ability for an artist to record sort of an interstitial. It may be spoken liner notes. And so, um, but what I take away from your remark, which is really interesting, is that as, as the cycle shrink, as it goes from an LP to an EP to a single and, and the ability to get music out there faster, the podcasts are yet another move along that spectrum of immediacy and, uh, and reaching an audience even faster. Yeah. I would, I would warn people in music, though, that um, you know, podcasting spoken word is not their core competency. And, and just because they are good at music doesn't mean they're going to be good at podcasting so Mm -hmm. so i think i think it's going to be a little more specialized than just having labels kind of start doing audio right start doing spoken word but again 
you know, these are changes that can be made over time. Sure. And, you know, record labels, music groups, buying podcasting companies, hiring people experienced in podcasting. These are all things that can happen over the short term. Could happen right. in two, three years, um, depending on how how aggressive labels want to get into it. I think streaming services, they they should be more audio companies. Pandora is, has been into podcasting for a number of years. They have the Questlove um, show that they've had for, I want to say, three years. I oh, did not know that. They've had the exclusive streaming rights outside of NPR, I believe, to Serial and to This American Life. So Pandora started on this a while back. You know, they they were not shy about it, um, and it did get some publicity. I don't think they've got too much recognition, though. Um, and maybe maybe um, maybe being first isn't always the best, as you know. Sure, sure. But they've been on it, and and uh, you know, it's been reported that they're going to have a genome project for podcasts, as they have for music, and that would give uh, kind of genomic attributes to podcast. Very interesting. To to recommend and to, to catalog. Well, if we then we zoom back out, Glenn, uh, I'd like to close with your take on, you know, or rather, uh, just what else has your attention? I usually don't think too far into the future because you get past three or five years and really who knows. Absolutely. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. It really is because uh, because there's so much great programming. I don't know if it eats into, cannibalizes my music time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has. I think I just listen to more audio in general. I listen to audio incrementally in new places, like my kitchen, uh, that I normally wouldn't really probably have music on, or maybe so far in the background, I'm not paying attention. Um, and, and so I just think podcasting right now is the area of growth. Um, it is the hot new thing, as you can see in the Edison webinar. That's really, it's like they just, everything was a preface to fine. Now we can talk about podcasting. Interesting. Everybody's tuning in. Um, you know, I think in music, again, we talked about how does uh, streaming and how do these companies make sure they're supporting different types of music, different genres. Um, you know, it's not as easy as saying, well, you're a metal band that usually puts out albums, but now you need to put out singles. Now you didn't think about doing things differently to get on playlists and get on the charts. Not that metal's ever going to get in the top 40, really, but um, but you see what I'm saying. I sure. Mean, there might be some expectations on a lot of different types of artists to do things differently. And I think that's fair to some extent. But not everybody can put out singles constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of fans just they want albums. It, um, inter- and- interestingly, on the bill, on the quickly started on the metal front, I don't know if you've seen "Give Me Radio," which uh, yeah. certainly caught my attention this week, which is a dedicated streaming app platform for metal. And yeah. so, you know, I think that perhaps supports your point, which is that. Um, and I, as I, as you noted earlier, I'm, I'm not a pop music guy myself. You know, not not uh, disparaging. It's just not my thing. Uh, but clearly, you know, popular music, as as the name implies, is going to be what dominates uh, traditional streaming platforms. And it's interesting to see some specialization in those areas that have perhaps been underserved. I think it's good that some uh, some genres have a place to call their own. 
right. that works with Christian music, contemporary Christian gospel. I think that works well with metal. Lynn, really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Penny Lane. If you enjoyed it, and we hope you did, you can leave us a five-star rating and tell a friend to support more great conversations and episodes. If you have feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at TrueStreamCo, that's at T-R-U-S-T-R-E-A-M-C-O, or send email to podcast at TrueStream.co.